Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and it's good to be with you today. We are continuing our lessons from the Book of Romans, and these lessons are using the Nazarene Adult Quarterly. We're looking at the spring quarter of 2021, and today's lesson is actually the May 2nd lesson. The title, How Can They Believe? We are studying Romans chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 15. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. And I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, found in Philippians chapter 1. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Participation in God's salvation often requires a dramatic shift in our worldview in how we think of the righteousness of God. It requires us to rethink what we thought we knew about salvation, about how we can be made righteous with God. And this is Paul's message today to the, both the Gentiles and the Jews in the church at Rome. Now, today we are conditioned to view Judaism and Christianity as two separate religions. As Christians, we don't think of ourselves as Jewish. But when Paul is writing to the Romans, there was no division between Judaism and Christianity. Christians were those Jews who recognized Christ as the Messiah and the Gentiles who had joined them. Paul had no intentions of starting a new religion. He wrote over and over how he was a Jew and remained a Jew. Paul was proud of that Jewish heritage. We have the idea that Paul had rejected the Jewish law after, after his experience on the Damascus Road that Paul had stopped being Jewish and was now Christian and that he taught that the Jews should get rid of the law. But this wasn't the case. Paul was insisting that there was no need for Gentiles to observe the law, that no one, Jew or Gentile, was saved by obeying the law, but that both Jew and Gentile were saved through Christ. But Paul himself continued to observe the Jewish law. And we can see this from Paul's experience at the end of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts ends as Paul is returning to Jerusalem one last time. And when he arrives, he reports to the fathers of the church about what he has been doing among the Gentiles. And the church elders there, they are glad to hear from Paul, glad to hear what God has been doing among the Gentiles. But they tell Paul there is a problem. There is a rumor going around Jerusalem that Paul is telling the Jews who live out among the Gentiles that Paul is telling them to forsake the law. So they come up with a plan. They want Paul to join four other men who have given vows, who have taken vows to the Lord. And together, Paul and these men will go through the temple ceremonies. They'll purify themselves. They'll pay their vows. And this is designed to show that Paul is an observant Jew, that he keeps the law. They want to put to rest these rumors that Paul is all about abolishing the law for the Jewish people. Acts 17, 24, 
Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself observe and guard the law. And so Paul agreed to do this. And we can see from this then, Paul was still an observant Jew. So you can see why the Gentiles in the church at Rome were confused. They had joined the Jewish faith. They had accepted the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the King of the Jews. He was now their Messiah, their King. But Paul is saying the Jews were missing out on God's salvation. What did all of this mean? Paul's message in the first part of the book of Romans, God's righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. Both are saved through faith in Christ. Those Jewish people who have rejected Christ, they have missed out on God's salvation. The Jewish law cannot provide salvation. And so the Jewish believers must understand it's not through obedience to the law, but it's their faith in Christ that saves them. So there's no need for Gentiles to begin observing the law. The law didn't save the Jewish people who practice it. It wouldn't save Gentiles. So you can think of what this means. The Jewish people had been chosen by God to be His people. They had received the law. They had entered into a covenant with God Himself. But the majority of the Jewish people were missing out on the righteousness that God provided. So, there's an irony here. The Jewish people who had pursued righteousness so zealously, they ended up missing out on God's righteousness because they were pursuing righteousness through obedience to the law, while the Gentiles, who had not been pursuing righteousness at all, they had been granted righteousness because of their faith in Christ. You can see then why the church at Rome would have questions, why there were aspects of Paul's message that would puzzle them. And so in this part of Romans chapter 10, it's as if Paul is carrying on a dialogue with these readers, responding to questions that he knows they have. Now, you can hear Paul's readers responding to this message that the Jewish people had missed out on the righteousness of God. You can hear them respond, well, how could this be? They knew the reputation of the Jews. They knew how earnestly the Jewish people followed the law. They knew their dedication to the law. Because of this dedication, in fact, the Jewish people had always been suspect in the eyes of the Romans because they insisted on worshiping only one God. In fact, the Jews had been exiled from Rome under the emperor Claudius. It was only recently that they had been allowed back in when the new emperor, Nero, took over. So, the Gentiles knew that the Jewish people were dedicated. That had never been in question. So, how could a people so consumed by righteousness, how could they end up missing out? Paul begins here by emphasizing he has no personal animosity against the Jewish people you need to remember there were lots of rumors going around about Paul. His conflicts with the Jewish people were well known. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. And Paul is referring to a specific punishment. Uh, This punishment was forty lashes of the whip that were given to a man. 
However, because 40 lashes were enough to kill someone, the Jewish people were restricted to giving 40 minus 1 or only 39 lashes. So Paul had suffered at the hands of the Jewish people, but he wanted the Romans to know his preaching against the Jewish people, this wasn't because of anger, bitterness on his part. In fact, he says his heart's desire and prayer was that the Jewish people might be saved. Paul freely admitted the zealousness of the Jews. He writes, they were zealous, but the zeal was not enough. Their zeal was not based on knowledge. Paul writes, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Now, Paul was one who knew what it meant to be zealous. He writes of his own experience as a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, our tendency is to assume the Jewish people were basically hypocrites. Their righteousness was all for show. They were concerned only with externals, with their reputations. But Paul knew what it was like to grow up as a Jewish person and be consumed with obeying the law, to be consumed with seeking a relationship with God through the law. He knew the dedication it took. He knew the hard work that it required, the sacrifice that, were, that was involved. You know, this had been a crucial part of his life for years. So, Paul had been a Pharisee, one of the most devoted of the Jews, and he knew the dedication this took. Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had given his all to obeying the law. And so, Paul knew that they were zealous. But, he knew that even though they worked hard at being righteous, they were missing out. And so Paul's point here is, zealousness is not enough. Zeal, if it's for the wrong things, will not help us. Now, this runs counter to a lot of the, the talk that we hear today. We have the idea that really it's not so important what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. You know, it's the sincerity of our beliefs that really matters. But Paul wants his readers to understand, don't make any mistake about it. You know, being sincere simply may mean that you are sincerely wrong. What we believe is important because our beliefs shape our lives. They shape what we do. And so our zeal must be based on knowledge. It must be based on the truth. And this really should make us stop and think. Today, is our zeal mistaken? Are we zealous for ideas, for practices that really have nothing to do with obtaining righteousness? How do we know this? How do we know when our zeal is misplaced? And I think it's something that should particularly concern us who belong to the holiness tradition. You know, it's too easy to confuse our traditions, our lifestyle with God's standards of holiness we can start to define holiness as a specific lifestyle where we dress a certain way, where we avoid certain entertainments, these kind of things. And we can assume that because we're living in this way, because we're zealous, we are now holy. But that may not be the case at all. Paul goes on to say here, 
Because the Jewish people submitted their own righteousness for the righteousness of God, then they did not submit to God's righteousness. God had provided a path to righteousness through Jesus Christ, but the Jewish people had not accepted this. The good news, the gospel, was that through Christ, God had provided a way for all men to be reconciled to Him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, or the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul lays it out very clearly. The path to righteousness is through Jesus Christ himself. The law could not provide righteousness. God had never intended for the law to be the way to righteousness. The law pointed to Christ. Christ was always the source of God's righteousness. Now, Paul in other places gives us reasons why the law was ineffective. You know, he says that those who obeyed the law to achieve righteousness, they would have to live through the entirety of the law. At some point, though, everyone disobeys the law. No one keeps the full law. In the end, everyone winds up a lawbreaker. And it doesn't matter whether you're a major lawbreaker or only a minor lawbreaker. Whether When you've broken the law, you've broken the law. In fact, Paul points out an irony here. The law told us what not to do. But in fact, knowing the law made it inevitable that you would break the law because when you knew something was forbidden, this knowledge made it all that more attractive until it became too attractive to resist. Because the Jewish people did not know the righteousness that God had provided, they substituted their own. They put into place their own method of being right with God. So why would they do this? Why would they prefer their method of righteousness? Well, I think there are several reasons. You know, I think they they continued to seek righteousness through the law because that's what they were familiar with. That fit with their view of the world, with the traditions they had been raised with. They sought righteousness through the law because this was a method that played to their strengths. It allowed them to to exercise willpower. It allowed them to value their efforts over others, to kind of show their superiority. We think of the Pharisee in the temple as he was beholding the, the tax collector. And how the Pharisee said, I thank God I'm not like one of these. And so obeying God or trying to achieve righteousness through the law often turns out a way to let us kind of place ourselves above everyone else. And I think they chose this method of salvation because it allowed them to remain in control. They could determine what was and was not done. So we need to recognize we often seek out a way of salvation that appeals to us rather than the salvation that God has implemented. The result, the Jewish people missed out on having God's righteousness. 
And from this, we can see the simple truth. We must approach God on His terms. We can't bargain with God. We can't dictate to God. We don't work out a compromise. We either take God's way or we're in rebellion against God. Now, our culture has shaped us to believe that we can fashion our own salvation to a certain extent. We live in a culture dominated by individualism and consumerism. And we promote this idea that the individual can determine his own destiny, follow his own path. As Frank Sinatra saying, we can do it our way. But our culture also promotes consumerism. We even view religion, our relationship with God, as a commodity, something that we can purchase, that we can add to, that we can shape according to our own taste. So we often have this assumption that we've formed an agreement with God. We'll go to church, we'll give some money, we'll obey the major rules, you know, no drugs, no drinking, no cheating on your wife or husband. And in return, we expect God to do His part, to keep us healthy, to keep us safe, to give us success in what we do. And a lot of times we assume that we are righteous, that we are right with God, because in America, we have a lot of blessings. There's a lot of prosperity, and we have easy lives. And this often fools us into thinking that we enjoy a special relationship with God. Our idea a lot of times is we must be right with God or He wouldn't be blessing us the way He does. And so we mistake material blessings, prosperity, security. We mistake these for God's approval. In Revelation chapter 3, it is written to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. When we look at this, you know, that can describe us today. We look around, we see our physical blessings, and we assume, well, God must approve of what I'm doing. We don't realize our true spiritual poverty. So, after Paul's readers have asked him, how could the Jews miss out? And Paul has answered this. You can imagine the next question that comes out of their mouths. If the Jewish people, God's chosen people, the ones who had been given the law itself, if they missed out, then What hope is there for us, you know, the Gentiles, the people who had been away from God all along? And Paul answers it very simply. He writes, Christ is the culmination of the law or the fulfillment of the law. And Paul makes the point, this is for everyone who believes. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. Christ was God's answer all along. You know, we have the idea that God created this universe and everything in it, and it was good, and everything was great, and then man messed it all up. And since that time, God has been trying to set things right. And so God started looking for ways to fix this mess, and he would put this plan in place and then that plan. And so 
God put in a covenant with Abraham, and then later he put in a covenant with Moses and gave them the law. And when this didn't work, God decided he would send Christ as the sacrifice. But God's plan all along was to send Christ. Scripture tells us God had this plan in place, that Christ would be the redemption for our sins, even before the world began, before the world was created. So Paul wants us to know we have everything that we need to be saved through Christ. He writes, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Paul is reassuring them that all they need is available. And he's paraphrasing a part of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, Paul would know that the Jewish readers would understand this. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is giving a final speech to the children of Israel, and he's begging them not to repeat the mistakes of the first generation where they rebelled against God and his laws. And he's telling them, you need to choose life or death, blessings or cursings, whether you're going to go with God's law or not. And Moses tells them that this way is possible for them. Deuteronomy 30 reads, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. So Paul is is pointing back to this, and he's paraphrasing this to say, Christ today is near you. There's no need to send someone to heaven to bring him up to you. There's no need for someone to go down to the dead and bring him back. The word is near. It's nigh. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. So, Even though Jesus was no longer physically present with the believers, there was no need to go and get him. Paul is reassuring them, Christ is here. The word is near. And he gives them two things that they are to do to get this salvation. First, he says, you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You profess your faith and are saved. Now, it's interesting, this Greek word for confess means to say the same thing or to agree. So, to confess was to share a common view, to admit that something is true. The emphasis here is not so much on this being a public confession, that you are saying it out loud, but the emphasis is that you are making agreement, that you are agreeing Jesus is Lord. So, to confess is to admit that Jesus is who God said he was, that Jesus is the Messiah, the source of our salvation. Then Paul goes on to say, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe and are justified. To believe is to accept the reality of something. And to truly believe is to know that the gospel and everything that it claims is reality. And when we truly believe that, it transforms us. It affects everything about us. Hans Fry said that discipleship rises and falls depending upon the world we consider to be the most real. 
And what he was saying by that was, when this world is what's real to us, this physical world with its materialism and its all of the consumer culture and all of that, if that is what we consider real, then our discipleship is kind of fickle and it's lukewarm and it never really takes off. But when we realize that it's the kingdom of heaven, that's the true reality, that is when our discipleship really takes root. Our, our discipleship really begins to grow based on the reality that we accept. We often say, oh, I believe, I believe, but our actions show that we really don't. If we truly believe, then we base our lives upon what we are proclaiming to be true. I want to close this lesson today with a a statement from John Piper, where he talks about what it means to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. He writes, What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Satan believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. He saw it happen. To answer this question, we need to ponder what the resurrection means for God's people. The meaning of the resurrection is that God is for us. He aims to close ranks with us. He aims to overcome all our sense of abandonment and alienation. The resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration to Israel and to the world that we cannot work our way to glory, but that He intends to do the impossible to get us there. The resurrection is the power of God, the promise that all who trust Jesus will be the beneficiaries of God's power to lead us in paths of righteousness and through the valley of death. Therefore, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is much more than accepting a fact. It means being confident that God is for you, that He has closed ranks with you, that He is transforming your life, and that He will save you for eternal joy. Believing in the resurrection means trusting in all the promises of life and hope and the righteousness for which it stands. It means being so confident of God's power and love that no fear of worldly loss or greed for worldly gain will lure us to disobey His will. As we go into this next week, I hope this really is the reality of our lives, that we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that we confess that Jesus is Lord, and then believe in our hearts. And that way, God becomes the new reality for us. We base our lives upon that. We live our lives upon that. We know that it's true. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this message we've heard from Paul. We can think that that this message is negative in that the Jewish people had missed out on their relationship with you. But as Paul wants us to realize, you have provided a way to salvation if we will accept it, if we will, will follow that path that you have given us. You've given us everything that we need, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to take advantage of that and to make your salvation a reality in our lives. We love you in your name. Amen.